0: probably not the greatest way to start a sermon but imagine your worst day ever here's a cheerful thought for Sunday morning imagine the day that just did not go according to plan a bad day it doesn't have to be maybe it's not worst day ever it's probably not the mindset you want this morning but a rough day one of my rough days probably still not my worst day ever but it still drives the point home the day i moved to starville that sounded terrible let me back up the day i moved to starville i had a bad moment <laughs> We were we uh you know you know how moving goes anyway that's always a delight you know uh, heavy furniture hot especially as you move in the summertime all that good stuff well the moving trucks were gone all of our stuff was contained inside the building and I was rearranging some things and I went on the back patio and we have a nice little grill we cook out on the back patio and I was trying to put it where it's gonna stay and where it still is right now. And I was backing it up and I was holding it like this and pulling it back into position and caught my thumb between the grill and the fence post. Bad day, (laughs) right? Like big metal object, hard wooden object, thumb. You know, rocking a hard place, if you will. It hurt, it hurt bad. I was convinced it was broken. You know moving day if you've been moving furniture and you're tired anyway and you're going to have to rearrange because the house has to be like it's supposed to be over the next few days because all the stuff's in boxes pick boxes up move stuff around you know relocate the couch like with telepathy or something it's not happening you know i mean it was one of those days i was like man moving day my first day in starville i'm so excited to be here crunch er visit with people i've just met <laughs> hey can you take charlie to the doc? we don't even know where the er is can you take charlie to the er like it was one of those rough days and i know you've had them right i know you've had a day was like that or a season in your life where it just truly felt like you were walking in darkness maybe your most desperate hour just tough season in fact Oftentimes, that for most of us, like Lent, I had to give up chocolate. You know, whatever. I mean, like we've had these difficult seasons in our life that can make it hard. How do you respond? I mean, I had to like this guy didn't barely even knew take me to the hospital. Like I know we just met, but can you drive me to the ER and sit with me? (laughs) But how do you respond to those difficult situations? Do you look to other people? Do you look to Deep inside of yourself, if you go to God with those things, how do you do that? What does that look like? How do I possibly get through this particular period? By the way, I don't think it was actually broken. Like the ER said it was, first pass, but like, I don't think it was actually broken. It felt like it was broken. It was just weird. It was bad. But what do we do? Well, there's this guy named Job who had a bad day, had a much worse day than a thumb between a grill and a fence post, you could say that. If you know the story of Job, you know he lost absolutely everything. The Bible calls him somebody who was innocent and without blame and righteous before God and extremely wealthy in the way that they were wealthy back then. Big family, lots of possessions, lots of cattle, lots of stuff. His moving truck would have been bigger than mine. You know, just wealthy. And the story, as the story goes, the enemy walks into God's presence and says, Hey, I think he just trusts you a lot because you've made him Bill Gates. I think if we take that stuff away, he wouldn't love you. God says, bet. Let's do that. Let's see what happens. Let's see if it's true or not. Go ahead. You just can't kill him. So the enemy starts to say, stuff away. Family members die. The cattle are wiped out. His house gets blown away. Everything, he loses absolutely everything. Now that is a bad day. Even so, and he comes back and he and he's, he still does not curse God. He still does not go, God, it's all your fault. Why did you do this to me? And so the enemy comes back again and says, he's, yeah, but he's still healthy. And he says, all right, take his health, but you can't kill him. And so he loses his health too. Like he has lost everything. And when the dust settles on his now empire that's made in ashes... He sits down, literally, the scriptures tell us he sits in silence for seven days with a couple of his friends. He just sits. And then he breaks, he's the one who actually breaks the silence in Job chapter 3. Here's what it says. Actually, I'm just going to read a couple of verses of this. This was how he responded to losing absolutely everything. Let the day perish in which I was born. And the night that said a man child is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. His response to losing absolutely everything is to curse the day he was born. It was better that I'd not be born than go through what I'm going through. And I think... Based on what I just told you about the story, you could probably feel that way too, right? Your family has died. Your house is gone. Your possessions and money and wealth is gone. Your health, you've got massive boils on your skin. You're just sitting in the dirt with your friends going, what do we do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I mean, what would you do? He curses the day he dies. Now, he notice he does not, he still does not curse God. He didn't curse God. He, still, go, he just still doesn't blame God and go, God, why did you do this? Or God, why did you allow this to happen? That's not what he does. He goes, it's been better if I'd never been born in the first place. That day should be, in fact, he says somewhere in chapter 3, that day should be removed from the calendar. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Whatever bad day you had, <laughs> that's no longer on the calendar, you know. June 20th, June 22nd. We're just going to wipe that one out. You know, whatever that day is, it's just no longer going to exist. Verse 13. Yes. Now, I would be lying down and quiet. I would be asleep and then I would be at rest. Wait, is that the right verse? Okay. Anyway, I thought it was 13. Is that was up there? Huh? Okay, cool. Not what I was thinking. Um, I don't I have no idea why 13 laid in the notes. Isn't that fun? When your pastor's like, I don't even know what my own sermon says. Maybe I put this next to the day with the grill and the fence post and we'll just move on. All right. So he basically says, and be better if I'd never been born, because I cannot endure this. I'm just gonna lay down and die, basically. Maybe that's where the verse came from. I'm just I just want to be at rest. I desperately want to peace. And if you've ever been through that level of trauma, that's probably where you are too, right? It's like, I just want to rest from all this chaos. I just want a breather. I just want a break. I just want, part of me says, I just can't do anymore. God, Job never directs his anger at God, but he does wrestle with what's going on, right? He does emotionally go, Okay, this is a bad day. And it didn't happen literally in a day, but it does happen in sequence. Like when you read the first couple of chapters of Job, when one guy comes in and says, your family's been killed by a storm. then before he leaves, the next guy comes in and goes, the cattle are gone. Like it's, it's, it's a cavalcade. It's an avalanche of bad stuff. And he just kind of lays down and goes, it's better that I didn't exist. My days have no rest, only trouble. Maybe this is the right verse. 24 through 26. (laughs) We'll try that. Yes. For my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Truly the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Now, he's saying this in a poetic outcry to God in Job chapter 3. My groanings pour out like water. I have no rest. It's trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble. And he is starting to lay his heart before God and going, I don't, it'd be better if I wasn't here. I can't endure it anymore. There is no rest. There is only trouble. Well, this is Palm Sunday. And so Job becomes a weird passage to preach on Palm Sunday. Except the question before us is, what do we do in our, when we're when living in darkness? What do we do when we're struggling with challenge, when our heart is crying out? I mean, we sacrifice at Lent to remind us there is a God and it's not us. <laughs> right? Because the things that become too important for us become idols. And we lay those down at Lent to remind us that we ultimately are dependent on God. Even when your world is as dark as Job's. Where do you find rest in those dark moments? Where do you turn? Well, Job had some friends that sat with him, in the sub- subsequent chapters of Job, they try to give him their advice, which is terrible. So you can't go read Job out of context and go, oh, this is what they say you should do, because they're like giving bad advice for chapters. <laughs> okay? So you can't... Re- that wasn't worthwhile. There was no meaning. He sounds like the Ecclesiastes. There was no meaning in all the possessions and wealth. There was no wisdom in my friends. Where's God in the midst of all this, which is what our heart cry typically is, right? Why would this happen? What's what's the purpose behind it? Where is it? Where do I get where do I turn to get rest? Well, the people of God on the first Palm Sunday were basically enduring a generational bad day. And here's what I mean by that. They were desperately seeking what? They were wanting a king to come and kick out the Romans. Right? They've been waiting for generation after generation after generation for a Messiah. As a nation, their heart is lamenting the way Job does. As a nation, they've endured empire after empire after empire that has oppressed their people. They endured some 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Then they get to the promised land and they kind of mess that up. And empire comes in and takes over. And the Romans ultimately come in and take over. And they've been waiting For the the throne of David to be restored and for the Romans to be kicked out. And that's what they've been looking for. Their heart's longing has been looking for that on that first Palm Sunday. And so in Matthew 21, this is what happened. When they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Immediately you will find a donkey and and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone anyone says anything to you, just say this. The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and and that were following, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. For generations, they've been anticipating the son of David who's going to come and restore the throne and kick out Rome. And Jesus has been performing miracles. In fact, Palm Sunday happens right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, if, you, if you're looking for a king who's going to throw out the Roman Empire and he's able to raise the army from the dead that got killed in the last battle, that's a good guy to follow. <laughs> right? You can go into battle. He's going to take care of you. Okay, let's go. In other words, he's displayed his power and word has gotten around that he's got that kind of power. He's fed 5,000 people from some loaves and fish. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He's done all this miraculous stuff. He's coming to get rid of the Romans, finally. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's going to start. It's happening. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. It's about to happen. Hosanna, son of David, king. By the way... When a king would go off to, fight, to battle and come back after winning, what would he do? He would ride back in on a big parade and in tri- and triumph and have this big victory parade. And they, the people would rush out of the city to meet the conquering king and follow him back into town. Sound familiar? They're running outside of Jerusalem. They're laying down coats. They're laying down palm branches. Hosanna, son of David. No pressure there. No expectation there. The phrase son of David, what are they thinking he is? The Messiah. And they're laying down the royal cloaks... ...for the parade, for the victory parade that's about to happen. The king has come, finally. Unfortunately... ...that's not why Jesus came. Unfortunately... ...Jesus didn't quite measure up to their expectations, did he? He didn't marshal an army. He didn't foment he didn't rebellion. He didn't set up a new kingdom. He, he didn't turn the Romans out. In fact, a week later... The same people who were shouting, Hosanna, were shouting, crucify him. What happened? In their generation after generation of darkness and oppression, they were looking for a solution from political power and might. They were looking for a throne, a king that would solve all their political problems. Just the right leader will take care of all my troubles. I won't have to worry anymore. I'll have peace because the king is coming. Instead of looking for a solution to that darkness where it really did lie, which is in God. Jesus doesn't set up a throne. He comes in, he does what he does for that week. And when they realize he's not going to be the Messiah they promised, the religious leaders go, he's pretty popular, we can't do something about this. Because it's a threat to their world. Romans go, we can't have rabble-rousers, so that's okay. Although the Romans give them a choice, right? You want this murdering guy or do you want Jesus to be freed? We'll take the murdering guy. You kill Jesus. So they have this moment where it's like, he's not going to be the Messiah. In fact, when Pilate puts the king of the Jews over the top of the cross, what do they go to him and say? You should change it to say he said he was the king of the Jews. Because he's clearly not. He did not meet their expectations. Their worst day was generational, and he was not the solution they had hoped for. So they direct their anger at him and have him executed. What are we supposed to do with anguish and despair and turmoil when our life turns south? How are we supposed to respond? Well, we're going to go back to our friend Job, because Job actually does do pretty good with the whole God turmoil destruction thing, and we haven't had Job days. We've had bang your finger days by comparison, at least. This is Job 42, which I didn't bookmark. We had, side note, we had had these church Olympics a few weeks ago, back around the time the Olympics were here, and we had sword drills. And it took me an entire extra minute to find Job, because I thought it was after Psalms, and it's before Psalms. So I was like, where's Job? Anyway, I'll never forget that now. Now I know where Job is. So I grew from sword drills. Anybody do sword drills when you were little? You know what sword drills are? Never heard of them? them. So I call out, we'll we'll do it in Connection one Sunday. I'll just like, sword drill, get your Bible. You have to have a Bible. Get your Bible, and you can't use a digital one, that's cheating. I call out a Bible verse, and and the first person to find it stands up and reads it. That's sword drill. So I'm looking for Job after Psalms. (laughs) Didn't win that sword drill. Okay, side note, over. Psalm Psalm 42. Job 42, verse 1 through 6. Now, Job has been through this season. He's listened to all the people. He's sat before God. He's wrestled with God. He's worried about what's happening. And he comes to this moment where he has this, really a conversation with God. God goes, who are you to question me about what's happening? And then Job does this. Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides, the count, hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I don't, do not under, did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and, you, and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of, your, of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Job has this moment where he realizes that everything that has happened cannot thwart God's plan. No matter how bad it was, God is still in control. And he had said some things that he had regretted. He had finally lashed out and said, God, just let me die. You know, he had said some things that were beyond comparison. Probably what we say when you bang your finger, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's these things that just life gets beyond us. And we finally look at God and go, God, you have got to fix this. I cannot. And God says to Job, exactly. I've got this. I'm still in control. What happened to you will not thwart my plan for your life. It will not destroy you. I have you. And Job goes, I kind of said some things I shouldn't have said. (laughs) I said some things I didn't understand. I've heard your words. I've heard your wisdom. I've understood it. But now I see you in the midst of this. So I repent of the things I said. I repent of my lack of trust in you. I trust you. How does Job respond to absolute misery? Confessing that he tried to fix it himself. Confessing that he tried to understand it himself. Confessing that he really kind of lashed out in anger. And he repented of all that. But what's really interesting is in that passage, what does, God say, what does he say about God? He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've uttered, I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. Job says, God, when stuff bad happens, I'm going to question it. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to wonder why this is happening. My heart's going to ache. I'm going to say some things I probably shouldn't say because I really don't understand. Job is free to wrestle with God in the midst of his doubts and fear and loss and anxiety and darkness and pain. In anguish, And he says, God, when that stuff happens to me, <laughs> I'm going to question you about it. But when you respond, I will listen. I've heard you before, but now I see you. I think I've said this before, and I know I've somebody said this to me, so it's not even original with me, but spiritual insight is hindsight. That when we're in these dark moments, when we're in these challenging stages in our life, whether it's a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or 40 days... Most of the time, we can't see God in the midst of it. We might hear wisdom. We might hear wisdom from our friends. It's okay. Everything's going to be all right. We might hear some wisdom from our friends that sometimes doesn't sound very comforting, right? It's all part of God's plan. (laughs) Really? Job lost his house, his family, his wealth, his possessions. This is all God's well, That's really comforting. God wanted to destroy everything I have. That's comforting advice. And so in the midst of that stuff, we can't see God. I don't know why this is happening. But when we come past it and we look back, we can see everything God did in the midst of it. What's the old footprints poem, right? God, it was just me. There's just one set of footprints in my darkest hour. That's right, I was carrying you. Now, how did you get that insight in the poem? By looking back at the sand. Every time I was going through a challenge, it was just me. Where, were you? Where was the other set of footprints next to me? God says, I'm carrying you. We can't always, and that doesn't mean pain and suffering and darkness is a good thing. And we certainly don't mean that it's part of God's plan. But as he promises, I've got you in the midst of it. One of the beautiful things about being a follower of Jesus is when we're going through darkness, we don't have to go through it without Jesus. Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with God, you have to go through darkness and pain and suffering and anguish with the wisdom of your friends on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like with nothing, with no hope, with no reason for hope. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, there is nothing you're going to go through that He's not with you in the midst of. And it still hurts, and it's still a challenge, and it's still terrible, it's still painful. But when you look back, you start to see what God was doing in the midst of that. Because if we're free to fall into the goodness of God, even in our darkest hour. If we're free to wrestle, to be Job, to be Jacob, who literally wrestled with God, right? To go to God and go, God, this is not cool. Whatever's going on in my life right now is beyond me. I don't know what you're trying to do here. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't like it. What are you going to do about it? God goes, come on. Come on. Keep going. Keep going. It's okay to wrestle with God. I think sometimes we come to church and we think, oh, at church you're supposed to be reverent, right? Supposed to love God and be worshipful, and specific connection. You can drink coffee and wear jeans, but we're supposed to be so reverent when we come to church. It kind of it trains us to go, oh, we're in this holy place, right? And that's a good thing. That's the right thing. The problem is, I think we think that's how we're supposed to relate to God when we're not here. That it teaches us this is how you communicate with God. Oh, Father, I'm having a bad day today, Father. Like, there's some level of reverence in our you know personal spiritual life when God's going. Tell me what's on your heart. I'm good. I can handle it. And we can let loose, and God can handle that. In fact, what He really wants is for us to let loose. Because those expressions of pain and angst before God are also expressions of dependence on God. Expressions of humility before God. To look at Him and go... Is, is, is to tra- could be transliterated with, you fix it. I trust you. It's when we try to fix it ourselves and we try to do it all ourselves and we try to rearrange our world just perfectly and it's blowing up in our face and we just double down and try harder. God's sitting there going, whenever you're ready, <laughs> how's it working out for you? And he's Dr. Phil. You know, like, I'm, whenever you're ready to trust me in these circumstances, I'll take over. What He's looking for us to do is for our heart to actually cry out. Should we be reverent in church? Of course. Is God holy? Should we be reverent with Him? Of course. But do you think God can handle your pain? Of course. And so we go through dark seasons, and they happen because this world is not the way it ought to be. That's all sin's fault, by the way. Not God's. That's because... The fall, Adam and Eve ate the fruit (laughs) that God told them not to eat. And it kind of fell apart from there. Everything was changed. Our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with each other was broken. Our relationship with the ground was broken. you got to mow grass because of Genesis 3. It's terrible. And pull weeds because of Genesis 3. It doesn't just grow perfectly. (laughs) It's all Genesis 3. Relationships and dating and marriage and all that's hard because of Genesis 3. But God had a plan even at that point. Because even as God's laying down the curse and he says, you're going to be kicked out of the garden. You're no longer in a perfect relationship with me. You're, you, you'll be over your wife, but she will struggle with you. There'll be a power struggle in relationships. That's going to happen. Now the ground's not just going to like, boop, there's fruit. You got to work it and pull the weeds. All that stuff is going to happen now and you're going to die because of sin. But the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There's a prediction right there in Genesis 3 that says, one of Eve's ancestors will have victory over the evil one. In the very moment when humanity essentially falls apart, God already has a plan. Now, there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of years of pain, darkness, war, disease, destruction. And God's purposes are still going to be accomplished. In fact, that's what we celebrate at Easter. Is the fact that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. Actually, the cross was the bite and the heel part. But Easter Sunday is next Sunday. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he crushed the enemy's plan. And that took thousands of years to get to that point. And we're like, it's a bad weekend. How do I get out of this? (laughs) God can handle your deepest and darkest moment. He's already got a plan for it. You might not see it now. But when you come out the other side, you look back and go, oh. You were carrying me the whole time. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess to you we don't always understand the circumstances in our life. We confess to you that sometimes we try to do it our way to make it right, to make it go the way it's supposed to. We confess that we scheme and plan and try to help each other's scheme and plan. We try to carry it ourselves. And like Job, the trouble keeps coming and we have no rest. Gracious God, help us to rest in you. Help us in our darkest hour, our biggest challenge, to fall into your goodness. Precious son Jesus' name, amen.